Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm a very stuffy, allergy-riddled Abby. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, nobody can see. I have a cold in my eye. I have, like, my pink eye is finally going away, but it... I would rather have a cold, because then it's, like, it's not as scary. People see you, and they, like, like, shrink in fear when they see your pink eye. (laughs) Don't touch me! Yeah. (laughs) When people are when people are stuffy, you're like, okay, whatever. But when they see the cold, when it is visible in your eyes, oh, so just anyway. Uh, if you're oh, new no. to the show, this is what we talk about. Um, welcome, and if not, well, then welcome back. The two of us have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you, all while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Um, today in between, I'm sure many sneezes and Kleenex moments, we will be discussing the 2023 gothic thriller, Saltburn. Wow, we've been talking a lot about gothic movies this season, haven't we? Yep, and nobody can stop us. You fools! <laughs> <laughs> The film was written and directed by Emerald Fennell and stars Barry Keoghan, I believe is how you pronounce his name. I I've did heard, my best. Yeah, I've heard it different ways because nobody can pronounce it. <sighs> I'm sorry, Barry. I'm sorry. Jacob Elordi, Rosamund Pike, Richard E. Grant, Allison Oliver, and Archie Madekwe. We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode, and for the film, I guess, in general, can be found in the show notes. Okay, are you still here? Great. Then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? Absolutely. It's 2006, and Oliver Quick is studying at Oxford University under a scholarship. He claims to be from a troubled and very poor home and hopes to become friends with Felix Catton, a popular, kind, and well-off student. Oliver's sob stories touch Felix, so he invites Oliver to his family's extravagant summer home, Saltburn. The place is filled with eccentric characters such as Felix's parents, sister, cousin, and family friend, but none of them are as strange as Oliver himself. Oliver begins to weasel his way into the family's hearts, minds, and even their beds. Death is inevitable for us all, but possibly sooner for the residents of Saltburn. Dun, dun, dun. Thanks, Abby. It's better on the dance floor. (laughs) You better not kill the crew. (laughs) Gotta burn this goddamn house right down. Just kidding. I, I don't know that if that's actually. So I listened to that song on the way to class last week and it just got me so hyped. 
<laughs> you weren't dancing naked to class with your huge dong waving. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, I do not have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> that was like Luke's first comment when we watched this. That was his first comment. He goes, that man has a massive wiener. <laughs> They were not lying in the scene uh, in the field, I guess, when <laughs> Farley is no. like, okay, good for you. <laughs> well, seriously. And Luke was like, do you think it's real or is he wearing a prosthetic or something? And I was like, I don't know. I don't care about that kind of stuff. I don't even want to think about it. But he was like, he was like, so like, what? Is that real? Like, he couldn't believe it. <laughs> Well, you know, Luke was in the military, so he's seen a lot. And he's seen a lot of different wieners, the poor man. For him to say that, I mean, <laughs> all right, enough, enough about Barry Kilgan's wiener. Holy cats. We'll talk about it more later on in the script, but Ugh. man, oh man. Oh, Lord, help me. What, God. Okay. What a scene. <laughs> seriously good for the i mean i mean great for him he is just he's he, living life he is living life he is yeah. making all these great crazy movies and in just enjoying it i love I know. it and he's so cute he's oh so my god cute. he is so cute he is so nice he is just so humble and sweet i mean he comes from like a wild background oh yeah oh yeah I couldn't believe his story. His, like, mother died. Something like his mother died. His father abandoned him. He was, like, on his own yeah. for forever and just kind of, like, started going to, like, acting stuff, like, acting classes and whatever. Yeah. But he was basically abandoned as a child. He was a boxer, too, I think, That's right? right. Like, a boxer, yeah. And he had to, like, take care of his brother, too. I can't remember if he's the older or the younger one, but I know that he's very, very close with his brother and their relationship is, it's very adorable. Like, well, they basically oh. had to raise each other. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh Mary. Oh. What a success story, I which know. is probably, which is so funny because it's like his story is so incredible, endearing, like amazing. Like you could make a movie about him. And then you have Emerald Fennel, who comes from a life of luxury. Yeah. And you have these two people, because her father is a famous jeweler, which is so funny. Her name is Emerald. Um, okay. Her father is a famous jeweler in England. He does all the jewelry for Elton John. Stop it. Yes. Her 18th birthday was photographed and covered for a socialite magazine in England stop she is wealthy beyond belief abby oh my i had no idea does that kind of no change idea. your idea about this film because i think when i when i found that out i was like this completely changes my thoughts on this film yes wow 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 yes this whole film, well, I talk about how, like, meta this film is because right. of social media. And now yes. that just adds an element to it that I'm like, whoa. Right. 
So I think it's so funny that you have here Barry, who is from, like, he's, he's the poorest of the poor growing up. Oh. And then you have Emerald Fennel, who's the wealthiest of the wealthy, and they make this film. And we'll get into it. Let's get into the production. I just okay. thought it was yes. I oh, just thought it God. was inc- what an incredible, like, yeah, the the meta ness of the the whole thing is really interesting to me. So here we go. Yes. Um, production. Writer director Emerald Fennel began plotting Saltburn way before she even started work on her 2020 film Promising Young Woman. Uh, she won the Best Original Screenplay Oscar for this one, by the way. Dang. Uh, yeah. Uh, according to Wendy Mitchell, quote, for Emerald Fennel, Saltburn started with a lick of a bathtub plug hole. Quote, a film idea usually starts with me as a flash of something visual, says the writer, director, producer. This film started seven or eight years ago with an image of someone licking the bottom of a bathtub. You know everything from that image. That's about somebody wanting something you can't have. When we're in the grip of a really intense desire, I don't think licking the bottom of the bathtub feels that transgressive desire is not all candles and jazz it can be more sinister and uh after the bathtub image fennel says she developed the plot over years and years in her head before finally writing the script she says once i do it on paper it has the most minimal redrafting uh, it's kind of lived in my head for four or five years. By the time it gets to the page, it's almost word perfect for what's been said in my head a thousand times, unquote. And according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, by January 2022, Tom Ackerley and Margot Robbie's A Lucky Chap Entertainment was in talks to produce after collaborating with Fennel on her previous film. I think that's interesting that she knows Margot Robbie because... Emerald Fennel plays Midge in Barbie. She plays the pregnant Barbie. Oh, okay. Yes. Aww. She's maybe on screen for a full 20 seconds and she's never, she doesn't have a close up ever. She's kind of in the background, but it's her. <laughs> it's Aww. her playing. Because I think she was pregnant at the time. So they just, gotcha. they, and she's friends with them. So they made her pregnant Midge. Um, <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> it is kind of cute. Uh, So, according to Wendy Mitchell, quote, Fennel always had Irish actor Barry Keegan, right, in mind for her Enigma, even before his Oscar-nominated and BAFTA-winning role in The Banshees of Inishirin, which, y'all, that movie is so fucking good. It is the quietest movie ever, and it is so powerful. I love it. Okay. Um, He won a BAFTA for it. He was great in it. Uh, she had been a fan of his performance in Yorgos Lathamos's The Killing of a Sacred Deer. With Barry, he's looking for an immediate emotional response. He doesn't like to rehearse. He wants it to feel immediate and natural. Everything that he's thinking can be quite clear, unquote. According to Rebecca Ford, quote, by setting the story 17 years ago in 2006, Fennel is able to dabble in portraying the recent past, which she says, quote, really knocks the fucking glamour off things. There's nothing like a Livestrong bracelet and a Carpe Diem <laughs> tattoo and an eyebrow star and a bootcut jean that deglamorizes things, unquote. <laughs> yes, it's so annoying. 
The early 2000s <laughs> were the worst. They were, everything was so ugly looking. <laughs> it was so ugly. And now all that shit is coming back. And that's all I see now on like campus when I'm there for school is all these people wearing their, their either like super high like waistline up to your boob jeans which <laughs> i do love a mom jean but okay i love a mom jean yes low rise jeans low rise jeans yeah and like the the obnoxiously flared out jeans are coming back okay and i then can't like, do the flare i can't do i can't go back to that for sure no 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 and then like you know the shirts with like the thick athletic stripes across the chest like those are all <laughs> <Yes>. back <laughs> and i'm like y'all we worked so hard to move past this phase what are you doing i remember when my mom uh, when the 80s were like a big style um that came back my mom was like oh my god like she was horrified <laughs> yes oh <laughs> Again, oh. showing our age. Oh, my God. And what's so funny is that you and I are both millennials, but yeah. there is a significant age difference between us. I mean, uh -huh. there's like five or six years between us, I think. But yeah. it's amazing how we both kind of lived. <laughs> oh. We lived it. We lived that same life. Oh, All I can think of is like Girl Scout camp when yes. I see this stuff. Maybe that's why I hate it so much because it... it <laughs> is traumatic <laughs> right oh <laughs> okay so according to the wikipedia page dedicated to the film and rebecca ford quote filming began on july 16th 2022 with linus San sandgren serving as cinematographer which i'm shook that he did not get nominated for an oscar oh. for cinematography at least truly at least <gasps> um but anyway the film is shown in four by three aspect ratio with fennel saying it gives the impression of peeping in which i thought was really interesting yeah fennel was determined not to film in an estate familiar to viewers which okay i wouldn't have known anyway i guess I know. <laughs> Again, she's showing her privilege in that scene. Uh, 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 oh. oh my god. And wanted to set the movie in one location. So aligning the filming with the film's plot, saying, quote, It was important to me that we were all in there together. That the making of the film in some way had that feeling of a summer where everyone loses their mind together. I didn't want to be constantly picking up and moving. And avoiding the need for post-production adjustments due to multiple locations, unquote. And according to Wendy Mitchell, quote, there is a real English town called Saltburn-by-the-Sea in, Nor in North Yorkshire. Mm. But Fennel chose the name for the Catton Estate because she says the word has something innately sensual to it, combining the sensations of sweat and pleasure and pain as well it's a word you can feel unquote which is so true yes saltburn had its world premiere at the 50th tuleride film festival on august 31st 2023 it premiered in the uk as the opening film of the 67th bfi london film festival 
in October of 2023. It also premiered in Australia uh, in October and then in the United States. Uh, Saltburn was given a limited release on November 17th, 2023, followed by a wide release by Amazon MGM Studios on November 22nd, 2023. So the film became uh, available to stream then. So um, that's when I saw it. When as soon as I saw that it was available to stream, I was like, hell yeah. And I watched it. <laughs> I saw it advertised on Instagram and I was like, Saltburn? This, what a weird name, first of all. Second, this looks incredible. I don't know how they got me. Something with my algorithm must be, but I was like, damn, I got to watch this. This was, it was really, it was marketed so well, I think. It was. Yeah. I mean, it was marketed, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but it was marketed on places where young people could see that it was available, like TikTok and Instagram. Yup. Um, and we don't have a Twitter anymore, so I'm not sure how it did on Twitter, but I know I saw a lot of people talking about it on Instagram, and that's where I first was like, what is this? So Hell Yeah. Now, for some reason, the budget for Saltburn remains under wraps, so we aren't sure if it actually did quote-unquote well at the box office. A few sources online said that its budget was probably somewhere between 10 and 38 million, which is a huge fucking gap. Like, how can you... Like, like, somewhere in there, we'll ballpark it. Like, seriously? Okay, whatever. (laughs) Uh, But according to Box Office Mojo, as of January 17th, 2024, Saltburn has grossed $11.4 million in the United States and Canada and $9.6 million in other territories uh, for a worldwide total of $21 million. Now, critics, for the most part, didn't really enjoy the film, although there were a few glowing reviews. Audiences, however, thought it was a it was great and an awesome ride. According to Wesley Morris for the New York Times, quote, Saltburn is the sort of embarrassment you'll put up for for 75 minutes, but not for 127 minutes. It's too desperate, too confused, too pleased with its petty shocks to rile anything you'd recognize as genuine excitement, unquote. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's so funny. Um, okay. And according to Allison Wilmore for Vulture magazine, Fennel may be an exasperating filmmaker, but she's incapable of being boring, unquote. I like that one. Yeah. I want to mention some reviews from Rotten Tomatoes by audience members because they are pretty funny. Um, so one person said, great movie, made me physically ill in an okay way? <laughs> question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> I don't know. Unquote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and another person said, the cinematography is beautiful, but for those of you who know the term, this movie is definitely a dead dove do not eat one. And uh, at first I didn't recognize that term until I Googled it. And it is from Arrested Development which Jeez. I haven't watched in forever, but it's so funny. Um, <laughs> this is from Tumblr. This is what this is how you, you can describe it. Um, essentially, it's a generic dark fiction warning. Uh, the name comes from a scene in Arrested Development where a character finds a package in a refrigerator labeled Dead Dove Do Not Eat. Curious, he opens the package anyway and discovers it contains exactly what the label says, a dead dove. 
I'm screaming. <laughs> I, remember, I remember that scene now. <laughs> anyway, oh, let's get into our discussion. Um, yes. Let's start with sex and objection in Saltburn. According to Christy Pook, quote, sex is not some lofty illusion in Saltburn. Love scenes, or lust scenes anyway, play out with a visceral relish. Fennel refuses glossy displays of perfect flesh, instead reveling in sweat, spit, semen, and menstrual blood, sticky and viscous. Some in the audience at my screening gasped in surprise or cried out in dismay over these graphic depictions of sex, which range from kinky to taboo to groundbreakingly shocking, unquote. Now, we've talked a lot about objection in horror films this season, especially, uh, and especially in our episode in uh, On Possession. But in case some listeners have forgotten, according to tate.org.uk, quote, the term abjection literally means the state of being cast off. The abject is a complex psychological, philosophical, and linguistic concept developed by Julia Kristeva in her 1980 book, Powers of Horror, unquote. Highly recommend y'all. And, quote, abject art is used to describe artworks which explore themes that transgress and threaten our sense of cleanliness and propriety, particularly referencing the body and bodily functions, unquote. So, yeah, the abject is definitely strong with this one. Yeah. Um, Emerald Fennel said something interesting about this. Um, she said, quote, I think what's a bit troubling is we're not used to people showing us things that are sexy, that make us feel uncomfortable. And therefore, people are inclined to say, oh, it's a gross out or it's provocative. All the people who are shocked by it, I just wonder what they're looking up on the Internet at three in the morning. I mean, come on. And that quote is from an article by uh, Missy Schwartz for The Wrap. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I'll kind of get into my thoughts on this in a second. But as you were reading that, I just thought, like, it's so funny to me that, at least personally, <laughs> we're going to get, like, super personal here. All right. Everyone. Let's hear it. Yes. Hell yeah. <laughs> I was never into guys who were like ew periods gross like ew no i don't i don't want to like do anything if you're on your period right. it is incredibly sexy when guys are like i don't care i don't care about that and you see that in this film and i in my experience have come across a lot of other women who share that sentiment so uh. it's it's purely based on anecdote but I really do think that it is super, super sexy when guys are like, oh, yeah, it's just like your body and its functions and whatever. Like, so I think it's really funny that so many people thought that scene was so taboo in the garden. Right. Because I was like, oh, no, that's like, I don't know. That's it's very normal for me. But different strokes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, I never thought it was gross either. 
I was like, I was like, whoa, either he really likes her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Or he is like trying to make her like him. Yes. And that was like a way for him to manipulate that because I think it is pretty common that most period having people don't mind that. No. And I think, um, I mean, for the most part, we cramps hurt like hell. Yeah, dude. Like having sex or masturbating keeps the cramps from hurting. It actually feels good. Yes. So it's like having sex or like taking care of yourself <laughs> in that way that helps you feel better it feel yeah. it make takes a pain literally it takes a pain away it's like euphoric almost so yes i and i think it's interesting because earlier she mentions how she doesn't think that the scene where he's licking the bathtub is transgressive because if you have ever really desired something so much that you would lick something, you know, or that yeah. you would like do something like that's that strange, then it's not, it's not weird. Right. And I mean, I did think the bathtub scene was pretty gross because I was yes. like, that's, you know, but, but I get it. I get what she's trying to say with that. So yeah. Yeah. But I think the period scene, and I think it's because you and I both have periods. I think it's like, we're like, that's not weird. Yeah. That's. That is like, there's a motivation behind this because it's something that feels really good to people who have periods and to have somebody go down on you like that. It's like, hmm, either he likes her or he wants something. So yes. there's like something going on there. So it's really interesting. 100%. So to, to kind of delve more into that a little bit, I um, had a really wonderful opportunity to take a class this semester on uh, sexual deviance and paraphilic disorders. And if anybody ever gets a chance and they're interested in stuff like that, take it because you learn so much. You really do. But we have ended up talking a lot about this film in the really? class. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. Seriously? Yeah. Seriously. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So we've, all been like really working on the professor to watch it we're like <laughs> every week we come back and we're like did you watch saltburn yet but a lot of our discussions in this class involve how we sort of classify those sexual acts and okay when they cross over into paraphilias so for anyone who might not be familiar with the language a paraphilia is at least in this class we consider it something um that is a little bit unusual or even like delves into the realm of hurting another human being for your own satisfaction. But what I have learned so far is that anyone who is a sexual person is a little bit kinky in some way. And what we consider taboo is such a strange thing to me because like, I'm going to be honest, like we were saying, I found myself less grossed out by these scenes and more fascinated. Like, <laughs> it felt kind of voyeuristic in a lot of ways. And that's the whole point of the aspect ratio. She wanted it to feel that way. Right. Yeah. But I mean, with that being said, I do think there is sort of a danger that lies within this film. Like, mm. we, I'll talk about later... Well, our next topic actually is the psychology of Saltburn and how 
Oliver is kind of portrayed as a sociopath. Oh, yeah. Like, he's not a good guy. No, he is not. And I had his number, like, early on in this film. But I realized right. what he was during the scene in the bar, like, when Oliver acts like he doesn't have money and stuff like that. I think associating his sexual behavior with that sort of psychotic behavior toes the line of being very problematic. Right. Yeah. How, like, however, though, I would be lying if I didn't acknowledge that sometimes scary people have unusual sexual proclivities. Like, this definitely captures it in a way that makes it unnerving. Sure. Like, everyone is... Like, deviant sex, like, when it... Like, safe deviant sex, I should say. Like, not something that involves minors and all that crap. But, yeah. um, you can be, like, deviant in a way, but be a good person, <laughs> you know? Right, right. It's like, it doesn't determine that. So. Right, like, your your sexuality doesn't always define you unless no. you want it to. So sure. it's like, you know, it's... I don't know. It's It's not all bad. Well, not all bad, y'all. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just put in there like there's a lot of asexuals who dress provocatively, and it's yeah. not because they want a you know attention in that sense. They just like it, and so it's like you know everybody's different, and it doesn't really matter. Like one hundred percent, one hundred percent. But I mean, another detail about this film is that pretty much all the sex happens in secret. Ooh, yeah, and. That was definitely done on purpose, according to Fennel. In an mm. interview for Men's Health, she sort of touches on this and she says for, well, the interview says, for filmmaker Emerald Fennel, the ingestion and exchange of bodily fluids in the script from spit to semen to period blood was directly influenced by the pandemic Ooh, and okay. the limitations placed on intimacy and desire during the lockdowns. She said there is a direct line between the fluids that exist in the film and the fact that we were not allowed to even breathe the same air for nearly two years, that the things of the body were not allowed to be touched. So, again, we go back to that abject sexuality, but for different reasons altogether. So that was That's another. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. It was a really, um, a really cool concept that I... When I was watching it, I didn't really put two and two together because I was like, okay, this takes place in 2006, but I definitely see those themes now for right. sure. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so to kind of continue on those thoughts, let's talk about the psychology in Saltburn. So I see a lot of people out there on social media especially calling Oliver a psychopath. And I don't know that this is necessarily true, although some of the traits are there. But I think this film explores something that's a lot less represented, like antisocial personality disorder or borderline. Okay. So Ahana Swerp writes, when we take a look at Oliver's overall behavior, we get the following. Concerningly controlling tendencies constant manipulation to the point where he appears as distinct characters at distinct points of his story and a violent streak ending in four deaths all these point towards symptoms of antisocial personality disorder 
Furthermore, mm. Oliver showcases a clear lack of guilt towards his actions, as confirmed by his climactic victory lap across Saltburn and his huge dong. Nevertheless, <laughs> his care <laughs> that that was not in the article. <laughs> Are you sure? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh. Nevertheless, his character has the ability to justify all his wrongdoings in his mind. Oliver can't feel bad about his actions against the Catons because they have condemned themselves for their grossly hedonistic, unempathetic lives. So although any normal person would be able to point out the irony in Oliver, an upper middle class man criticizing the upper echelons of society for their lifestyle while he actively craves the same, it surpasses Oliver. Instead, the man can justify all his manipulative, violent behavior in the name of his desire and the Catton's excess. Mm. As such, it's safe to say that Oliver Quick is likely a sociopath. Ultimately, his desperate desire and inability to comprehend morality in a productive manner remain the reason behind his actions. Mm. So, the author is right in a lot of ways, but... We know that a lot of mental illnesses tend to overlap. Like, they have a lot of comorbid tendencies. You get a lot of the same symptomology, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm leaning more towards psychopathy with a hint of um, a lot of other things. So. No, okay. <laughs> Um, clinical observations at Atescadero State Hospital have suggested four possible subtypes of psychopathy. So you have narcissistic, borderline, sadistic, and antisocial. Oliver has them all. Like, Ooh. the way he manipulates situations and triangulates drama between the occupants of Saltburn, that's like textbook. Right behavior so also real quick can we talk about the vampirism in this film yes i thought there was going to be a twist where he was going to be a real vampire i did too <laughs> i did too because he gets invited in yes okay go ahead yes okay according to an article on clinical vampirism by uh doctors jeffy and cataldo they say hemphill and zabo who are other researchers, attempt to define vampirism closely to the Dracula myth as a recognizable, although rare, clinical entity characterized by periodic compulsive blood drinking, affinity with the dead, and uncertain identity. Hmm. Like, hello, you've got the scene in the garden with Venetia. Right. Affinity for the dead. He literally has sex with uh the grave <laughs> it's dead 100 percent, yes and uncertain identity like does oliver even know who he is is he trying to find that well, i think we he don't is. know who I he is he's trying to assume the identity of the people who live at saltburn right so relying on the modern vampire myth they reject associated features such as desecrating graves violating corpses, eating human flesh, or having intercourse with the living. The, their clinical sample expressed no interest in sex, and blood ingestion represented a compulsive behavior that brought mental relief to the participant 
without any ability to psychologically comprehend the experience or ascribe it any meaning. So, like, Hmm. what we were talking about before, the act that Oliver participates in with Venetia has less to do with sexuality, I think, and more to do with him getting what he wants. Right. Which is so interesting when you think about it in these terms, because... He says, like, oh, lucky for you, I'm a vampire. And it's like, oh, okay. Okay. I see what this is. I was like, he's (laughs) going to be an actual vampire. Yes. (laughs) So this condition is distinguished from self-mutilating behaviors, intentional suicide attempts, dramatic gestures in the context of treatment of borderline patients, and manipulative self-harm that may take place for secondary gain in prison. So... The background to this study was that they they looked at people who were incarcerated and that kind of thing. So that's why it uses that language. But this really does a good job of explaining who Oliver is, really, because he is sucking the life out of this family for his own personal gain and to make himself feel better mentally. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, reading this was like, oh, dang. Okay. So not to mention, this film focuses heavily on Oliver staring at his own reflection. Yes. Yet not really seeing himself for who or what he is. And that is someone who needs to take from others constantly in order to feel anything. And the scary thing is is that this is probably more of a nature or environmental, not environmental, sorry. It's more of an innate, like, something inside of him as opposed to a nurture issue. Because we talk about, like, nature and nurture in psychology. He had stability in his life. He grew up in a really good environment with parents who loved and cared for him. So, That's part of what makes the film so scary. Like, he wasn't created. He was born a bad seed. Yes. Like, he was made this way. He came out of the womb saying, I'm gonna go take over an estate in the English countryside and there's nothing you can do to stop me. So it's so terrifying. It really is. It's, It's horrifying. This film is horrifying. (laughs) <laughs> Do you think because Emerald Fennel comes from a very privileged background, do you think she's kind of saying that it's it doesn't matter how much you have, you always want more? Maybe. It's a sickness. Sure. Yeah. And what happens when you're born with everything? Like she is. Like um, Felix is. What happens when you're born with everything? Like, do you take advantage of how much you have? Is it just, is it too much almost? Is it so much that you can't even appreciate it? Because remember when he's taking him through the house, he's like, and that's a, a Renoir or whatever, you know? He's yeah. like, oh, that's then, that's, uh, that's where I accidentally touched my cousin you know it's just like (gasps) what but it's like this weird like it's almost like she gets how absolutely bizarre it is to have too much and 
how weird it is that somebody would want too much you know i don't know yeah it's it is the whole idea behind this film and the way that she has shaped these characters is so perceptive i think especially for someone who grew up in that life to be able to kind of step back and see it from oliver's point of view even though oliver is a very very scary person um i think it's interesting but i think too it says a lot about generational wealth and how it's shared between them like i see a lot of similarities between felix and his mother about how they are always wanting to kind of take in people who are quote unquote wounded or like damaged or they see them that way right because she has her friend and she's like oh i feel so bad for her so i just let her live here and what's so funny is that they all live in that one room and watch movies on a tiny tv they don't even like hang out in the rest of the house i know yeah it's so strange so in a way i feel like maybe this is her way of saying that she like really wanted to connect because if you think about it you have this humongous estate but they all hang out in like i mean their their quote-unquote living room where they watch movies is like the size of my entire apartment but like (laughs) they all hang out in this very confined space they're all kind of like sitting on top of each other yeah even if one of them is like i mean because that's what's so funny is that that's what we do at my house and i know that's what you do at your house we all sit in the living room maybe one of us is on our computer maybe one of us is watching the tv maybe the other one is reading like i don't know whatever but we're all in the same room together until it's bedtime you know until it's time to get ready you know and that's like that's where we hang out as a family but we also have a a colonial like small house (laughs) right you know where they have this massive house yeah Yeah. sprawling estate yet they all want to be super super close to each other but it's all but superficial right and what's interesting is that oliver doesn't want that he wants to roam all of the rooms and he wants to be by himself yes he doesn't want to be in that room with all of them he wants to have the whole house and he wants to use every single room even if it is to just dance naked in it yes oh my god that's so it's like it's freaking me out how (laughs) how meta this whole film is yeah because it's like you see it too at the breakfast table when he like sends the eggs back because mm-hmm. he's like, oh, I can't eat runny eggs. But the whole family is like, oh, what are you like too good for our runny eggs almost? So it, there is that clear distinction between the haves and have nots. And it's almost like Oliver is living in this fantasy world where he is pretending to be someone who lives in Saltburn and is like very hoity-toity. And then the people who actually live in Saltburn are very, not normal, but like almost, almost normal. Almost like, like just like a regular family. It's like when rich people wear thrift store clothing. Or yes! clothing, that, or clothing yes! that looks like thrift store. Yes. But middle class people or even just, yeah, middle class people like Oliver want want to wear the nicer stuff yes that's a great example yes yes oh love it interesting 
Okay, yes. so let's talk about Saltburn in the age of social media. So my first semester of uh, my freshman year of college was actually in 2006. It was the fall of 2006. And I remember I went to school and I had a MySpace and a DeviantArt account. Like that was all I had for social media. <laughs> um, I was so proud of my MySpace account, by the way. <laughs> um, yes. And my roommate, she saw, she was like, oh, do you have, what do you have for on social media? Where can I friend you kind of thing? And I told her and she goes, oh, girl, MySpace is old school. You need a Facebook account. And that was when I got Facebook. And I was like, that is so like crazy. Um, so 2006 was arguably a very big year for social media, even though the concept of social media itself had already been around for almost a decade by that point, which is wild. Yeah. Um, according to Pharisee.co, quote, October 2006, YouTube was acquired by Google for $1.65 billion. So that was like a huge purchase. Damn. Uh, and in March of 2006, Twitter goes live. So Twitter was created that same year. And in September of 2006, the Facebook news feed goes live. And Facebook's grip on the world tightens. So that was just 2006. And those are three major, major pushes forward in social media. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah like not that long after that instagram became a thing so it was like it was like and right before that even 2005 it was like 2005 2006 2007 like those were like huge points for social media um according to the essay saltburn and the allure of social media influence by gianna carlo sopo quote Saltburn offers striking parallels to the unchecked ambition on display in our browsers and smartphones, unquote. And, quote, Oliver is no Norman Bates, nor does Saltburn offer a satisfying aha moment. The film leaves Oliver's mischievous motives largely unexplored. Fennel invites audiences to project their interpretations onto her work. And for those on X, formerly Twitter, the comparisons with the cadre of social media influencers driving much of online political discourse are hard to overlook, unquote. Sopo continues saying, quote, to paraphrase Venetia Catton's assessment on Oliver, certain social media influencers are akin to moths, drawn to shiny things, banging up against a window, begging to get in. Fennel Saltburn invites us to face a disturbing reality. Some individuals are so obsessed with clout, so indifferent to the harm they cause, that they will stoop to slurping bathtub remnants. At least Oliver's sociopathy aims for a considerable fortune. Our self-proclaimed digital arbiters of culture settle for likes and selfies in Palm Beach, unquote. Mm. So he's basically a social media clout chaser, which yeah. is really funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, to add to this, I think it's incredibly interesting how Saltburn gained a lot of traction after it became like a TikTok trend in December of 2023, especially with wealthy young people. Many of them dancing in their mansions to murder on the dance floor. And according to Elliot Hoste, quote, Fun fact, Saltburn was actually based off of our friendship group, said one TikTok user, semi-ironically, posting clips of candlelight dinners in a stately dining room. 
and, quote, when Saltburn hit a little too close to home, unquote, said another, accompanied by a video of her running through her vast estate. Oh. And, quote, I'm sorry, but I had to do this trend, unquote, said a third, followed by, you guessed it, some very cool videos of some very posh debauchery. And Ellis Bexter even got in on it, too, posting a video of herself sliding down a stairwell to murder on the dance floor this past New Year's Eve. While some of these videos had grand pianos and others might have had suits of armor, the common thread they're intent on communicating is that these people are in a different tax bracket to you. But <laughs> no sooner had the trend emerged did its critics swiftly follow. Quote, I'm not so confident that we watch the same Saltburn, said one comment. And quote, it's amazing how many people didn't understand the point of Saltburn, unquote. Uh, this per chimed in another. Uh, headlines like Saltburn Trends shows rich people missed the entire point of the film, echoed the internet's initial response. But was this actually the case? Had the trend really missed the point of the film? Unquote. Hoste argues that they didn't miss the point. Also, what's most interesting to me about these videos is that these posh homeowners are taking the place of Oliver, the middle-class usurper, from the original scene. Without even realizing, the people in these videos are mocking the possibility of a saltburn ever happening in their lives. To them, the film is not a cautionary tale, but a fictional one, and the trend shows that they are implicitly aware of that. They can safely dance through their man mansions and show off all their possessions because they know the likelihood of an Oliver taking everything from them is near impossible. If Fennel's film really was such a cautionary tale against the perils of upper-classness, which it obviously is not, people would be hiding in their homes, not showing them off on TikTok. The trend doesn't miss the point of the film. The trend is depressing because it understands the class dynamics that the film perpetuates." Unquote. Damn. Yeah. Again, isn't that like one of the most meta things you've ever heard of, though? <laughs> because... Honestly, I was thinking about this this morning and i thought there is no way a average person could have made this film and have it be no. exactly the same no. Fennel, no fennel grew up with these people she knows what what exceedingly rich people are like and yeah. what it is to have a, something like this uh-huh it seems silly but i think this is what it really is and so I really feel like there's no way that somebody, let's say from Barry Keegan's background, could have made this film. No it way. had to be made by somebody who was extraordinarily wealthy, I think. Yes, because she understands the wealthy characters. I think, and I mean, she is Pike, a wealth. She's she. I think is one of these people in a way. Yeah. Yes. Hundred so. percent. And it's not to say that like. I don't know. Like, I think Rosamund Pike's character is extremely likable, and you sometimes can't really help the way that you have grown up and, you know, the environment that you've grown up in. And uh, she does a great job of, you know, portraying someone who wants to be very self-aware and, like, aware of what what else is going on outside of this like rich glitzy world but she goes about it in awful awful ways <laughs> sure so, because she's she is 
I don't want to say she's shallow because she feels things, but it's almost like because she grew up with too much, she doesn't appreciate anything. And yeah. she has a hard time holding on to things. Like her sense of it's like she doesn't have the will to live. She just exists, I guess, is yes. what I'm saying. Yeah. She has no reason to live almost. And so she just kind of floats around. Yeah. And you know, it's very weird. Yeah. It is weird. It's oh it's unsettling. That's mm -hmm. the part of this film is just it unravels you. It really does. But I to to kind of get back to what we were talking about a second ago with social media, like Oliver watches everything he never had as an outsider while right. he's really scheming to take it all for himself. Like he's learning to imitate these people. And we as the audience are watching this and we're watching like how the other half lives while we don't really realize just yet that Oliver is kind of one of us while the rich watch us watch them. And they think that it's all just some sort of like silly story that might as well be a fairy tale because it'll never happen. It's kind of like reality shows, like yes. the Osbournes, uh, the Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Like we're watching these like obnoxiously rich people and their obnoxiously meaningless, meaningless lives. You know, although I do love the Osbournes, I know I do too <laughs> because they're they're quirky enough that it's entertaining. Yes. Where the Kardashians are just there's something not right there. But no, um, no, <laughs> there is something about watching rich people doing things <laughs> it's yes. so bizarre it's like a zoo almost it is oh my god it is sulfur and it's like a petting zoo <laughs> uh, so something else i want to talk about really quick because we would be so silly not to bring this up but this film like reeks of dark academia and yep. it's definitely shown in a new light here just because of the time period when it took place. But Gracie, this is an aesthetic that I think you and I really grew up loving because we were theater kids and we read a lot and we loved the drama. <laughs> yes, so, I, I do love me some dark academia. Hell yeah. But it's gotten a breath of fresh air with this film because it's so heavily influenced by social media at the same right. time. So right. really quick, there was an article that I found by Robert Jan Adriansen, I believe is how you say their name. Um, they wrote in their study on this dark academia culture. Dark academia is not a new phenomenon. It led a largely unnoticed existence on Tumblr since around 2014. One dark academia posts primarily consisted of dark, grainy photos of objects such as books and candles and handwritten letters and old photographs representing bygone scenes of academic life. And this was accompanied by lists of book recommendations. And it kind of spilled over to Instagram around 2017, where users posted stylized dark academia images of their daily life aspects of paintings, literature, academic life, and shared self-created mood boards. We love a good mood board here. Oh, love um, me a mood board. Oh, yes. 
this represented the universe of dark academia that they kind of created. So many Instagram posts also contain inspirational quotes drawn from Tumblr, and they underline this platform as the source of this internet aesthetics development. Although demographics are difficult to obtain for, um, it's a largely anonymous online community, observations indicate that the aesthetic is carried generally by female and gender queer bloggers in mm. their late teens and early 20s, often, but certainly not exclusively, with a higher education. So while the lockdowns and online education accelerated the spread and popularity of dark academia and the relevance of its learning-oriented thematic, its popularity had already been on the rise since the summer of 2019. So once again, we see this kind of intersection between Saltburn and the influence of the aesthetic through social media, while also converging with those themes of going back in time during the pandemic. So, I mean, I'm fairly certain we'll see more of these kinds of films as the years go on post-COVID because dark academia is, you know, it's so romantic and we missed that connection and isolation. But I think it's really interesting how heavily this film draws on those influences, especially from like previous films and previous books and stuff like that. Like you and I were talking about like um, Bunny and I think it's The Secret History, right? right? Was the other one. I've been seeing like a lot of stuff recently, especially Bunny. Bunny has, again, Bunny is, was on like book talk. Like that was like a big thing where everyone was talking about Bunny and- yep its relationship with dark academia and i can see how that and uh saltburn like have become super popular because of what you just said because it's like creates this romantic connection to um you know books learning <laughs> you know yeah and yeah. um but also wealth you know yes so yeah because you have to have money to attend a university mm-hmm. something that um we didn't write about because we kind of unfortunately we kind of had to throw this script together because of a lot of stuff that was happening this month um but i do want to mention that another um issue that comes with dark academia the aesthetic and the books and the movies that portray it very rarely if at all show people of color um experiencing the wealth and the education that they deserve, it can be considered a very racist aesthetic because of that. Do we love it? We we love it. We love a good, like, li big library. But when you see these images on places like Instagram or Tumblr, very rarely do they show people of color enjoying these luxuries of a university education, of a higher education, um, and a wealthy, uh, beautiful mansion. I didn't look really too into how uh, Farley's character is portrayed in this film. He comes from, you know, he comes from a wealthy background, but because his mother is having issues, he is going to potentially be cut off from his the wealthy white side of his family. And it's it's really sad because it's like he's being left in the dust and it's like 
even he doesn't get to enjoy the generational wealth that comes with, you know, his life and stuff that he should be able to inherit and enjoy. And instead, Felix and Felix's mom are bringing in people poor, these poor, poor souls, these poor people who need us who need to be here. And then you have Farley who's family and he's being like tossed aside. Obviously, he's there's stuff going on behind the scenes and whatnot. But like, they're, they're, they're saying something there too, which I think is interesting. And I want to hear more about what our listeners have to say about that. So let us know on Instagram. But um, yeah, Dark Academia and um, these kind of films in general do tend to push people of color to the wayside. And it's, it's a problem. 100%. All right. Let's talk about our final thought. So is Saltburn a vapid an anti-feminist. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> let me just say that while researching this film, I would say about 90% of the articles that I read were not in favor of this film. I'm telling you, nobody liked this movie. <laughs> I don't get it. What and like the re I'll describe some of the reasons in this, but I think you can have problems with a film and problems with its creator and still think it's a fun thing to watch. Yeah. yeah. But I also like I don't know. It's it's you can look at something critically and still enjoy it, I feel like. But that's just me. So According to Johnny Walfiz, quote, much like other contemporary stylist directors like Quentin Tarantino, David Fincher, and Christopher Nolan, Emerald Fennel puts the image above everything. Yet while those three male directors are praised for their gorgeous cinematography despite depthless plots, Fennel has been punished. It reeks of a double standard, unquote. Mm-hmm. Now, and I and I did think that. I thought, why are so many people hating on this film when nobody is hating on Django Unchained? <laughs> you know? Seriously. And people do hate on that film, which is understandable. But yeah. the backlash for that film was, to me, I mean, obviously it has some very, some major issues. Um, yeah. But um, people, the fact that people very like the there's so much more like hatred towards emerald fennel and another person is sofia coppola like sofia coppola gets trashed so often yeah for making pretty films <laughs> like yeah yep. why can't women just make schlock like why can't we make beautiful schlock that is exploitative at the same time now i wonder <laughs> do people feel this way because people feel like well She's a woman, so she should know better than to make something, like, vapid. Like, she should have more depth to her female characters because she's a woman. Like, she should understand. Oh, my God. Shut but that, up. Right. But that, to me, <laughs> that, to me in itself is anti-feminist. Yeah. By saying, like, you're a woman, you should know better. Because you're putting her on a pedestal. Yes. So, there's that. It's like women... And listen, okay. I'm thinking of this right now, but like Stephanie Meyer, oh. who made Twilight, that those books are inarguably like you can't argue that they're not that they're feminists because they're not, they're not at all. Every right. single woman in that book, and I mean 
every single woman in that those that whole series their lives all of their lives revolve around the men in their lives yes every single woman if you watch princess weeks on youtube has a great video essay that literally just came out a few days ago and it is about how um she talks more about about like the problems with twilight but a big part is like the internal misogyny that happens in those and the um anti-feminist rhetoric in those films where it's like nobody has a person none of these women have personalities all of their personalities revolve around being mothers and being wives or like having like relationships that is it it's incredible how anti-feminist those books are now should we blame stephanie meyer for making schlock like yeah okay it's schlock it's bad is it harmful yeah it's also very harmful because it shows young women that their lives should revolve around men there's that mm-hmm. so you can i think have issues with both like you you can have issues with women making anti-feminist films but you can also allow them to do it <laughs> at the same time yes i think it's like there's this really there's this almost this gray area where it's like we shouldn't have to put women on pedestals but we should also be free to call them out when they make anti-feminist media right because it is harmful but i think it's important that's why it's so important to look at everything critically because you can enjoy bad shit but you just need to know that it's bad <laughs> yes yes you know you can like you can like things that are harmful <laughs> you just need to know that they're harmful so exactly that's my reasoning well and i i I do i think we're on the same wavelength with this one because in a way like you said that puts women on a pedestal and it allows zero room for being human like none i know so many women who are whip smart but they love to watch reality tv and read celebrity gossip to decompress like I think in the same vein, artists need to be allowed to make fun shit, like quote unquote fun shit. And as sort of an anecdote to this, part of the reason why I quit as an art major and picked up psych was because so many of my professors took the fun out of art for me. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. They saw that like I had vision and talent, but they wanted me to follow the rules quote unquote and i was like fuck that like this is just wasting my time this is not the art that i want to make so i truly feel in my heart that women should just be allowed to do what the fuck they want because for so long men have been allowed to like they they get to make terrible films like yeah (laughs) yeah i mean yeah like holy shit if we even see it in horror like Male directors have been exploiting women since the dawn of horror films. (laughs) So it's like, not saying that it's correct or right or that you should exploit people, but it's like, holy shit, give me a break. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's like there's, and I think Princess says this in her video about Twilight. It's like, either women are, have like, 
either women just like don't know what to do and need a man and can't do anything or they're superheroes and need to save the world like there's yeah. no in between there needs to be an in between here <laughs> there are women who live in between that who are doing just fine and um i definitely think everyone should check out princesses video it's pretty great um but it's like yeah you can't just like live and make mistakes and <laughs> and be average <laughs> But like right. also fun and exciting. Like you can't be like both. You have to be either the worst or the best. And there's like no in between. Right. So like not every filmmaker is going to be like a Catherine Bigelow out here making films like The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Like, <laughs> right. Which are arguably very male centric films. You know. They are. So. They are. <laughs> and I mean, Silverburn could be considered a male centric film, but it's like, again. Like, just let people, just let women make movies. Just I let them know. make movies. Just... just let them make bad movies. Let them make good movies. Let them make bad movies. Seriously. And don't put them on a pedestal. <laughs> don't. Don't you dare. It's don't you dare. Pressure. It's too much pressure to be, to be right all the time. That's the thing. I know. It's like, it's way too much pressure to be constantly right. And it's like, we're allowed to make mistakes. We're allowed yes. to make bad stuff. And it's like, just let us... I'm so tired. I'm so tired, Abby. <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Uh, well, everyone, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you so much for listening. I know this isn't really a horror film, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thriller. It's a thriller. It's, it's a thriller. Okay. We can do whatever we want. This is our show. I know. <laughs> and you can listen if you want. <laughs> If you don't like it, get the fuck out. No, just kidding. But if you love it, donate to our Patreon. <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes. If you Please. have the means and appreciate our work, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And honestly, even just $2 a month is extremely helpful to us both. You can also just like set it up where you just pay for like maybe a month or two and you just want to do that and then you can cancel it. Um, just if you can give anything, it would be so great. Uh, it honestly, the two dollars that pays for a cup of coffee while we do research, which is Hell really yeah. nice. Uh, also, coffee shop workers have rights and deserve more pay, and should unionize. Fuck, just saying. Yes, <laughs> We're fellow issues baristas with that. unite. Yes, uh, Buffalo is having a reckoning. Buffalo, where I live, is was the first place where a Starbucks had unionized. So yes. we are a union town. Buffalo is a union town, and we are oh. making sure that our baristas, people who work in coffee shops, they are getting what they deserve. So, yes. Hell you yeah. Guys, we love it. Yeah, and as always, a free way to support the show is by following us on the gram. That's Instagram. Yeah, it's the only place we're at, because yep. it's the only social media platform I can handle. <laughs> I know. Seriously. I guess we're kind of on Facebook, but just follow us on Instagram. I know. Seriously. Um, yeah. So follow us there at good morning, Nancy. And truly just reposting our content really helps others find our show. So like, just do that little thing where you put our posts in your stories. It takes two seconds and it's so helpful. So, uh, word of mouth is also really great. Tell your friends, spread the word. Yes, thanks again for listening. Stay safe out there, everyone. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye!